You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Managemental Podcast, a weekly discussion on hot topics in the music biz for the up-and-comers, the brand newbies, the beginners, and aspiring rock stars of tomorrow. This podcast is propelled by your input and feedback, so please rate and review and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. I am Mike Mowry, typically known as the co-host from the other coast, uh, but I am filling in for our great host, Mr. Blasco, and as we've done in a few other episodes recently, I've brought in a dear friend of mine who wears the hat uh, of not only a manager, so he fits within the criteria of managemental, but also many, many other hats and roles within this business, Mr. Ryan J. Downey of Superhero uh, Management and Enterprise. Uh, Ryan, how are you? And and can you just give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Episode 91. That is uh, crazy and impressive. It feels like just yesterday when you guys launched this thing. So congrats on uh, being so close to 100 so quickly. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm well. And I'm uh, very appreciative and happy to be invited to come on here. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, um, I uh, run Superhero Artist Management. Uh Clients include uh, the band Demon Hunter, uh, who sold uh, close to 600,000 records over the course of their career. Um, The producer Zeus, who uh, recent records include uh, Rob Zombie, Queensryche, Revocation, uh, Demon Hunter, uh, Iced Earth, and a number of other great bands. And uh, yeah, over the years, uh, I've worked with a a variety of, of different bands in the rock and metal and punk space. Um, and then, yeah, my original background prior to being a manager and uh, consistently throughout has been in journalism, uh, broadcast, print, and digital. Uh, I worked as a reporter for MTV. I've done reporting for MSNBC, The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, uh, Alternative Press, a number of other publications. Um, and something else that I think is a little bit specific to this and perhaps uh, to save for another episode is I also do media training, which is helping to give artists the tools to uh, present themselves to the public in terms of press. And you also do um, at least one podcast that I'm aware of, but I think you might even do a couple more. Can you talk about uh, the names of those and maybe what they cover? Yes. Um, I host a podcast called Speak and Destroy, which is a podcast about all things Metallica. Uh, each episode, there's a different guest who has crossed paths with Metallica in some fashion or is just greatly influenced by them. Um, I've had people like Gary Holt from Exodus and Slayer, David Ellison from Megadeth, Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm, Jamie Josta, uh, your co-host Blasco was one of the first guests on the show, uh, M Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, and so on. Uh, Just a lot of great conversations about the greatest band in the world. And then I also host a show called No Prize from God, which are conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Basically talking to creative people, whether they're artists, writers, about their 
walk in terms of life's biggest questions coming from all sorts of different perspectives and experiences. So on one end of the spectrum, you know, I've had guys like Timmy from Under Oath and um, Maddie Mullins from Memphis Mayfire. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, I've had uh, Isan from Emperor and Satir from Satyricon and Dwid from Integrity. And then, uh, yeah, um, I've had an Episcopal priest on the air. I had uh, this awesome lady sister kate who's part of uh an organization called sisters of the valley whose nickname are the weed nuns they're basically nuns who live in a convent and grow and smoke marijuana um and uh yeah uh that's been a really exciting one because i I really felt that there was a a big hole in the podcast realm when it came to stories about faith that weren't coming from either a militant atheist perspective or some type of, you know, right-wing evangelical Christian perspective, but that we're actually filling in the gaps of the much more messy and nuanced. That's super exciting. And I mean, the Metallica one, of course, will speak directly to this audience. And you heard the guests on the other one. We'll put links to both of those shows in the show notes. I mean, you know, both Blasco and myself have known Ryan for uh, at least 15, if not more years. And, you know, he and I are, are dear friends. And when I was looking for someone to bring in, you know, I, I, I asked him straight away because all of you out there, I mean, Ryan has insights. And what I've always loved about you, Ryan, is, you know, you're very intelligent, you're very connected, but you're also in, so meticulous and researched on pretty much everything that one could be in regards to uh, the music biz. And, you know, I'm someone who is seen as an authority. I know, I mean, Blasco is absolutely an authority, but I think where you differentiate in a lot of ways is is your ability to really get in, dive in. And, and I, you know, I don't know if that's what made you a journalist or if your journalistic tendencies are what brought you here, but I'm pumped to have you here. This week, we're going to talk about uh, you know, some general stuff of likeness rights, trademarks, partnerships, um, you know, and how our artists, our listenership can try to straighten that stuff out early, um, you know, before it's too late. So with all of that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get mental. Awesome. So Ryan, um, you know, when I approached you, this was the topic that you know, you indicated you wanted to to cover, and it's one that we have covered in some capacity. You know, you pulled a particular specific article that appears on Blabbermouth about Ace Freely. Um, and, you know, if you don't mind, why don't you take the jumping off point and just give us like a little bit of a synopsis about that, what the article entails, and then why you thought it would be uh, interesting for you and I to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, and thank you for the massive compliments in that intro. That's uh, sincerely means a lot to me. And and yeah, Mike is one of uh, my oldest and dearest friends before either of us were managers, and uh, someone who, in a business full of uh, narcissistic personality disorder and cutthroats uh, and liars and cheats, uh, someone that I'm proud to say that I 100% trust, which is much fewer and further between than you would think. I was just going to say there's probably some people out there with some bad qualities too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that. <laughs> what's that Hunter Thompson quote? Um, so yeah, so Ace, uh, the headline was that Ace would only participate in Kiss's final tour if he could quote, take back his makeup, costume, and character. And I think that this is a conversation that opens up a lot of uh, important uh, 
discussions, particularly for bands as they're starting out in the early phases of their career, about issues that are likely to come up down the road once your band is a little more established. And if you haven't sorted them out ahead of time, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. Kiss being a, a big grand example so I would imagine most listeners are familiar with the band and the the uh, makeup and the personas. Um, for the, about the last 15 years, uh, since uh, Ace, uh, the band's founding uh, lead guitarist, and Peter Chris, the founding drummer, have been out of the band, there's been two other guys in the band who are wearing their makeup and in their costumes and their personas as the Spaceman and the Catman, respectively. And... Clearly, um, you know, the KISS fan base, which is very loyal and dedicated and, and passionate, uh, is pretty divided about uh, the decision of the other two founders who remain in the band, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, to carry on with guys essentially dressed as Ace and Peter. They've had guys other than Ace and Peter in the band before over the years, several guys, but for the last few years, this is the first time that they've, they've really just dressed two people up like uh, the ex-members. Uh, and... So what, what's really interesting here is when Ace says, you know, the band announced that they're going to be embarking on their final tour, which is the second time they've done that. But, you know, a lot of bands are guilty of that. Um, I mean, this time they really mean it. <laughs> this time they really mean it. And this time they're pushing 70. So it's, you know, they may have to. But uh, what's interesting here is that um, Ace himself seems a little confused about the legal ownership of his persona. Now, no one disputes that he created uh, the Spaceman character, that distinctive makeup and the the look and feel and everything, the costume. Um, what's more in dispute is that in interviews, Gene and Paul will say that Ace sold his makeup to them, uh, even going so far as to say that uh, he sold it for not very much because he didn't think it was worth a lot. And, you know, Gene and Paul and now when you, everything. When you say makeup, you're you're talking about the actual, like, design. The actual design, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of uh, the Spaceman Well, before character. we dig into the, those specifics, you know, yeah. let's let's take a 35,000-foot, you know, view. We're up in the plane. We're talking about, you know, likeness rights and, and things of that nature. I mean, what you know so many of our artists that are listening to this so many of the the loyal listeners as i like to call them you know they're they're just starting out i mean they might not even be thinking about having uh individual identities that are different than the person's face itself like you know just talk a little bit about maybe some of the general broad scope um you know components that you've seen or or that you're aware of and and kind of why how you can paint that picture so when we do dive into this super specific um you know component of it everyone's sort of got like that that general view yeah and i I can uh I, i can jump to another example uh briefly too uh black sabbath which was, you know, of course, originally Ozzy Osbourne, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward. Uh, without going through the complicated history of Black Sabbath, coming into more recent years when they announced their final tour, originally Bill Ward, the founding drummer, was going to participate. Uh, they weren't able to come to terms uh, financially and um, otherwise, and he ended up dropping out of the tours before it began. Around that same time, Suddenly, Bill Ward's image was scrubbed from the Black Sabbath website. And we're talking like band photos and album artwork, you know, dating back to the 70s, these classic shots and everything. Suddenly, Bill Ward's not in there. 
there was a big fan backlash where people noticed that Bill had been erased from the Black Sabbath photos on their website, um, assuming uh, that, you know, the band was was doing this sort of spitefully. And then the band came back with a response going, no, actually, Bill asked us to remove his likeness from uh, all of our uh, websites and so forth. Um so yeah, there is, even if you haven't, you know, Kiss is an ex- a good example because the personas are so identifiable and so extreme. But even in this sort of uh, more, you know, the more common sense of uh, guys that aren't painting their faces and creating these crazy characters, you have the founding drummer of Black Sabbath saying, you can't use my face uh, in, to promote your band that I'm not part of anymore. Now, would you say this is sort of like a prenuptial agreement? Uh, great way to put it. Yeah. So those of you out there that haven't been fortunate enough to go through the uh, marital experience, you know, but have probably listened to the great comedians like Chris Rock telling you, you got to get a prenuptial agreement. It's it's deciding what's going to happen in the event that things fall apart. And that's where it can be really challenging. You know, Ryan, you and I have both developed plenty of artists. And early on, I mean, this is the stuff it takes money to do, you know, and I think you know, in the case of Kiss and Sabbath, I mean, again, you're the expert on these things. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you if they started a band practice before they wore makeup, right? Or was it this manufactured thing? And they're like, we're going to be the makeup band. And if they were, that makes a ton of sense to the artists. You know, that would make way more sense to be thinking about it. You know, I can give a uh, pretty good perspective. My band that I manage, Ice Nine Kills, you know, we're doing certain things where guys are starting to wear makeup, you name it. When they started years ago, they would have never thought that it would even be an issue. So why would they even put this into place? Does that make sense? And with Kiss, those those likenesses were uh, there from the beginning. I mean, of course, they, they modified and evolved a, a little bit in the early days. Um, but that whole concept was definitely part of it. But I think speaking to what you're talking about, it's very similar to a marriage because when you're in that honeymoon phase, the last thing you want to do is sit down with your partner and say, hey, so in the event that things go south with us, uh, how are we going to divide up our property and our assets and anything we've accumulated while we were together? And it's just such an uncomfortable conversation to have. And I think with bands, it's very similar, especially when, as an artist, the last thing you want to be thinking about is the business and getting into these little uh, what can feel like petty conversations about who did what and who owns what and and so on. Um, but the reality is it's much better to have those conversations early when you are all getting along. And, hey, hopefully, much like a marriage, you know, you're hoping that the lineup's not going to change and there's never going to be disputes over these things. Yeah, real, real, real quick, I will mention that in episode nine, so going way back, we are on 91. We did cover not boring legal advice. It's a really good article. So go back. And, and again, if you're going to start to navigate these things just as you would with a prenup or any contractual obligation, whether it be personal or professional, an attorney is where you really want to make sure that you've got a great member on your team. And again, that's the thing that does cost money. And when you're out there trying to just figure out how you're even going to play a show, Ryan and I, and of course, Blasco know, yeah, these can be things that you might not need to be doing right this second, but it needs to be on your 
you know, proverbial to-do list, keeping something in mind of, you know, we, we think we've talked about operating agreements or band agreements. I know I've worked through those with plenty of artists, but in this case, I mean, it's very, very, very specific, right? This isn't, if the bass player leaves, does he get to keep his bass rig that the band bought or not? This is, I mean, holy cow, we've created an, an a, a character, a figure. And so before I interrupted you, let's get back to specifics of KISS, where I believe you were saying, hey, look, Ace sold or gave up his right, his claim that he's even making in this article way back when. Is that is that kind of where or, or more recently he gave it up? It's a little it's a little bit murky. Um, according to Gene and Paul, they're they're saying that he sold them his likeness rights on the, on the cheap to, for the character in the spaceman costume and, and the specific makeup. Um, Ace says that he didn't sell it to them. He licensed it to them. Now I, uh, I host a Q and a series at the musicians Institute, uh, that we do basically monthly. And, uh, Ace was actually my most recent guest. And so they're face to face as I'm, as you mentioned, uh, just innately curious about things and like to dig into it. I asked him, um, did you sell them <laughs> the makeup uh, or did you license it to them or what's the deal? And he said, well, my attorney tells me that I licensed it to them. Um, and I said, okay, well, how long, you know, how long is that licensed for? Um, and, and he seemed to be under the impression that the likeness rights were going to revert back to him. And this gets into a lot of detailed stuff that I'm sure you've covered before, like record contracts and so forth. So in a more recent interview done after mine, that I just read yesterday, um, Ace told the interviewer, uh, well, I, I, I licensed it to them. I didn't sell it to them. And that interviewer asked for how long. And he said, well, I don't really understand all the legal terms, but my lawyer said um, I licensed it to them in perpetuity, whatever that means. <laughs> and that's where it's like, okay, well, perpetuity means forever. And But that also opens up another interesting conversation, which is I think the distinction there. Because uh, Ace also says in interviews that uh, Peter Chris, the other co-founder who's no longer in the band, did sell his makeup and character to the other guys outright. Um, I, I suppose the distinction with Ace then would be if he's licensing it to them in perpetuity, maybe that means they can use it, but him still owning it means he can use it too. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, like, definitely. Um, whereas, whereas Peter Chris probably can't if he sold the whole thing off to kiss yeah. the organization he can't show up somewhere as peter chris in the costume and makeup no absolutely and and you know we will never know unless we got the actual contract or got those attorneys on the phone and it's not uncommon i mean look there's sometimes that even myself i think that um, I, we did a deal a certain way and if i go back and look at it maybe we licensed something when i thought that you know for a short amount of time versus perpetuity or whatever it may be but i mean i think just the fascinating thing to think about here is is okay you know this is just a whole another component of of what we haven't discussed on this show yet and i don't mean to overwhelm because this stuff does get complicated you know ryan i i think you know why this this topic and and when we were going back and forth and preparing for it you know obviously you've already mentioned kiss and black sabbath and then you mentioned the misfits like what is it about these types of things that made you want to discuss on on this show i think first and foremost it comes from the the fan perspective because we all have 
with some of these legacy acts who have, you know, are three, four decades deep, who have been so influential, you know, there's no denying the massive influence and impact that Black Sabbath, the Misfits and Kiss, these, these three bands in particular, um, across such a wide swath of artists and music that we all love. Um, over those time periods, there's different lineups, there's different eras, there's different sounds, different records, different tours, and everybody sort of has their favorite. And, you know, in a lot of instances, uh, people will revert to the original lineup or the classic lineup or, or whatever it is. And so I, I approach this. What's so interesting about it to me is as a fan of, of all of those bands, particularly the Misfits, um, it, it does start to matter as a fan kind of who did what and why things are a certain way. And, uh, you know, especially now in the age of social media where fan bases can be so vocal, you see something like the most recent Misfits reunion show that was announced, which is coming up in Chicago. Um, and it says, you know, original singer songwriter, Glenn Danzig, original bassist, Jerry only, uh, doesn't mention Doyle this time. Uh, and it, there seems to be some question about whether or not he'll be appearing. Um, that sort of stuff as a fan, you kind of, you just, you want to understand why, what are the, the nuances and, and, and then as, as a manager, and for aspiring artists, I think there's a lot of great lessons to be learned about, well, where did things go sideways, either for different members, ex-members, for a, a band's brand overall, um, that resulted in it being so complicated. And how can our band avoid, uh, you know, falling into some of those same traps? What, what, you know, how can we maneuver around that? Um, I would love to talk about the Misfits thing for a second, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and to me, just again, it's so it is it's it's really cool. And, you know, my question to you in regards to Kiss before we move on to the Misfits, but you could use them as well. Like, I mean, does it really matter if Ace Freely came up with this to you? Uh, you know, and I guess the reason I would ask is if Gene Simmons let's just say he was the overall mastermind, right? It was his concept. And again, I don't know enough about it, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but humor me and act like I might know a single thing about it at this second. Let's say it was just his concept and he's got his three buds around him. And he's like, all right, you come up with your own thing. You come up with your own thing. You come up with your own thing. But it's really his vision of even allowing them the platform to quote unquote, come up with their own thing. Does that make sense? It does. Like, and, 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 yeah. and and that's where talking about the Misfits is uh, particularly intriguing because it lines up a lot more with that. Um, the Kiss thing is a little more complex because there's no there's no doubting that Gene and Paul are the front men. Uh, you know, they're the primary vocalists on just about every song, big songwriters, and they steer the ship in terms of business and all of the licensing and merchandise and things that have kept kiss thriving for all of these years. Um, on the flip side, you know, Ace designed that logo, which is, you know, certainly iconic and a big part of their brand. Um, and they did each come up with their individual characters. Uh, but, but dovetailing that right into the misfits, that's an example where, Glenn Danzig, the uh, vocalist and founder of the Misfits and the you know only original member uh, prior even to Jerry only coming in, he was the guy. I mean, he came up with the look, the feel. He wrote all of the songs. He ran the record label. Um, you know, did, did all of the the merchandising. He was just 
he was the guy and the whole concept of the misfits. Jerry only certainly was an important contributor uh, in terms of the live performance, in terms of he came up with the devil lock hairstyle that we associate with the misfits. Um, and, you know, certainly had a, a, a reasonable claim to being an important member. And, you know, he came into the lineup very early on before they'd really done anything and was in the band the entire time, you know, in the original run from the late seventies to the early eighties, uh, it was him and Glenn and a succession of different drummers and guitar players, um, ultimately leading to the last lineup that had, uh, his younger Jerry's younger brother Doyle, uh, on guitar. So the band split in the early eighties and Danzig immediately took a lot of the same concepts and started a new band called Sam Hain. And Sam Hain was him and another guy, Erie Vaughn, who had been uh, friends with the Misfits and been their photographer and had been on the road with them and, and that sort of stuff. You know, it was very, it was very much a blurring of the lines where it went kind of seamlessly from the Misfits into Sam Hain. It was, it was darker. Uh, you know, there were some stylistic differences, but they brought the devil lock haircuts with them and uh, they did Misfits songs as part of their early live shows. Sam Hain, uh, when they were signed by Rick Rubin in the eighties, um, between Rick Rubin signing Sam Hain to his record label and then releasing his first album with them, the band uh, changed its name to Danzig and Danzig retained the same logo and a lot of the same iconography from Sam Hain. And so for fans like myself and for people looking at just the creative side of it, there's a very uh, seamless connection between the Misfits, Sam Hain, and Danzig. It's the same guy singing. It's the same voice. It's the same guy writing the songs. Uh, there's even, you know, action figures out there that are called the three, the three faces of Danzig. And it's, you know, his persona from each of those three bands. So setting that aside for a moment, on the other side of it, after the Misfits ended, you had Jerry only, you know, he used to take out these ads in Thrasher, the skateboard magazine, uh, kind of promoting himself as Jerry only of the misfits. And he's got the devil lock and the makeup and he's selling, you know, his own merch and that sort of thing. And, and him and his brother Doyle kind of toiled away trying different other projects and, and things like that. Um, and at some point decided that they would like to reform the misfits without Danzig. Now Danzig's carrying on at this point, um, doing all the misfits merch, uh, doing all the records on his record label, um, you know, uh, taking all the publishing and, and so on. And those guys sued him, uh, basically over the rights to everything Misfits related. Uh, initially, even they had sued with some songwriting claims, which they, over the course of the legal process, relented on and kind of admitted, okay, yeah, Glenn did write all the songs. Uh, so uh, in the mid nineties, I believe 1995, after years of litigation, uh, the two sides, came to an agreement and the agreement was um, Danzig was going to stop releasing uh, the Misfits records through his own label. They would kind of do a joint, you know, kind of a third party, basically Caroline records was going to be come in charge of, of putting out the records. Uh, Jerry was giving up any songwriting publishing claims. Glenn's keeping all the publishing and in exchange, Jerry gets the right to perform and record new music and tour as the Misfits um, and they agreed to share the merchandising rights. 
So both of them can make Misfits merch and do their own deals with merch companies and sell into Hot Topic and whatever um, the case may be over the years uh, themselves. They each get to do Misfits merch, but only Jerry got to go out and record and tour as the Misfits and Danzig kept all of the songwriting pretty, rights. Right. So pretty complicated, right? Pretty, and I pretty think the, complicated. The, 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 the moral of this, you know, story is the earlier you can start to identify th these things and attack them and really get out in front of them, you know, and again, you know, my experience as a manager and, and this is managemental and I brought you on because I know you also, uh, you know, can view it through that managerial lens. So, so can you give some examples from your own personal experience and you don't have to name clients of, of ways that you either saw this in action and wish you could have done something differently or, you know, saw it in action and uh, was able to get out in front of it. So you didn't have this insane fallout and then trying to put the pieces back together. You actually had a semi harmonious agreement, uh, you know, before the, the yeah, things fell apart. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can draw even a, a nice parallel here with the Misfits thing and, and kind of just to wrap that up really quickly, you know, Jerry and Doyle relaunched the Misfits with a new singer and a new drummer and signed to a major label and ended up putting out a couple of records and eventually all, that lineup fell apart and a series of members and ex-members came through and through and through to where you ended up with the Misfits as basically just Jerry um, singing and playing bass Um with, uh, you know, his son playing guitar and, you know, basically a really watered down version of it. And this all led to, uh, at the same time, Jerry was so successful with the Misfits merchandise that it essentially edged Danzig's Misfits merch out of the marketplace. Um, Jerry had done all the deals with all the companies and was getting into Hot Topic and doing all the thing and licensing it and making Misfits incense and women's underwear and, and you name it, uh, you know, kind of Kiss style merchandising uh, that there wasn't really, even though him and Danzig shared the rights, there wasn't room for Danzig stuff. So Danzig unsuccessfully uh, sued Jerry saying that he was violating their old agreement. But through that process of them Going back to court, they sat down together and worked something out that resulted in Jerry and Danzig for the first time in decades performing together as the Misfits again. And and where this gets into the managemental thing and where I can bring up a specific example from my own management experience is that uh, everyone was super excited to see those two together again. Um and the shows were huge. I mean, way bigger than any incarnation of the Misfits had ever, ever done in their career. Um, and the interesting thing for our whole conversation here in an ace for fairly sort of, uh, way is Doyle. So Doyle's Jerry's brother. Doyle was in the final lineup. Some might say the classic lineup of the original Misfits and then was alongside his brother through most of the quote-unquote resurrection era uh, that was successful in its own right and had it had an influence on a certain generation. Um, and when this reunion rolled around, you had Jerry's name super big, Danzig's name super big, equal size, side by side, and then really small underneath, you had featuring guitarist Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein. And for a lot and for a lot of fans, they think of the three of them as, as sort of on equal footing, at least in terms of the image and what what in their mind the misfits looks like. And for other fans, they go, hey, Doyle's not the original guy. Uh, you know, some of the earlier guitar players like Bobby Steele and you know, these guys were like way more important. Um 
the 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 interesting thing that it comes down to as a manager you know, from the business purely business perspective myself as a fan i want to see doyle up there on stage with his brother and danzig by the same turn from a purely business perspective you can understand jerry and glenn choosing to just not deal with someone else if they don't have to financially right because the and, and guns and roses is another great example when when you know people waited for years for axel and slash to get back together and there was a hope that we would see the original lineup and yet just having axel slash and duff mckagan has been you know one of the most successful tours in history so clearly as much you know and izzy straddling apparently wasn't part of the picture because uh, according to him uh, the guys weren't willing to share the wealth and an argument can be made. Hey, Izzy should be there. It's not right that Izzy Stradlin isn't there with guns and roses on the flip side. An argument can be made for the other guys that they haven't sold any less tickets. It hasn't been any less successful and they didn't have to share any money with him. Uh, so, you know, to my own perspective, to, uh, to answer your question, I worked with a band called tiger army for about 10 years. And like a lot of bands like the misfits, uh, Tiger Army is a band where the front man, uh, you know, came up with the name for the band, came up with this whole concept before he even had any members, you know, hired session guys essentially to, uh, you know, got favors from friends and that sort of thing to even get the first recording going. Um, and over the years has been the, you know, the, the songwriter, uh, the guy handling the business, uh, making the decisions, you know, what tour are we going to do? What merchandise are we going to do? And all that sort of thing. By the same turn, you know, this was a three piece band and there was a drummer that was in the band for a decade. There was a bass player that was in the band, uh, even longer who, uh, you know, had left at one point, but was, was in the band for a long time. Um, that bass player in particular was a very prominent part of the band for a lot of fans. Um, whether it's his backup vocals, his look, uh, his stage presence, um, you know, he did almost half of the talking, uh, in between songs and that sort of thing. And it's one of those things where as a fan, that's the version of the band that I want to go see as a business person. I understand the argument from the front man that whether or not that guy's there isn't changing the ticket sales. Or the record sales, right. you know. So. so would you would you like you know what I mean? And again, you know, as we aim towards starting to wrap this up, mm-hmm. you know, you're sort of the exception rather than the rule in my mind. So as much as I appreciate, you know, the misfits and 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 would love to go see them, and almost did go to Riot Fest when they reunited. Yeah, at the end of the day, I almost don't care who's up there. In some senses, it is cool to know if the original group or the group that of guys or, you know, whatever the band is, group of people, um, you know, has some sentimental uh, and, you know, historical context to it that does make sense. But you're right. At the end of the day, I want to hear the songs and I want to see it hopefully sung by the original guy who sang it. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a great guitar style that someone brings to the table or a great drumming style that someone brings to the table that really differentiates it. That's sort of like the icing on the cake for me. Um, 
But, you know, I do. I, again, I just think this stuff is so interesting and, and so complicated. But, you know, from if we're removing the fan perspective, I love what you're saying, you know, and, and this is where it really applies to everybody out there listening that's in a developing artist or if you're a young manager and you're looking after your band, you know, yeah, eventually the, the random bass player, you know, who might have a name for himself because he's been in this massive band for 20 years is replaceable. <laughs> and when it comes down to business, you know, you don't want to be the person that's sitting on the other end saying, oh my God, I got cut out because I'm not Axel Rose. I'm not Slash. You know, I'm just Izzy Stradlin. Um, yeah. And so, I, th- yeah. I think you brought up a, a great point when you use the word sentiment. A lot of it comes down to sentiment. And that's where we as fans, uh, you know, myself included, there are certain versions of things that we want to be a certain way, you know, and at the same time as managers, we also understand that sometimes there just isn't a deal to be made. (laughs) It's just not, you're not getting enough give and take on both sides or whatever the case may be to come to something that seems fair to everybody. And then it just doesn't happen. And then it becomes, okay, well, did we want this final black Sabbath album and tour with a different drummer versus not getting it at all? And those are important uh, questions to consider and and to bring it all back around and tie it up for uh, developing newer artists for better or worse. This is stuff that you need to think about. You need to imagine if you're ever as successful as the Misfits or a Kiss or a Black Sabbath or even a fraction of that success, uh, figure this stuff out early, decide on ownership, decide what happens when somebody leaves, which you guys have covered before, Uh, but even down to your likeness, because whether you've created the devil lock hairstyle or kiss individual makeup and characters, or even just your face like Bill Ward from Black Sabbath, um, whether or not your face is used on a t-shirt and and record artwork on a website, um, that stuff can and does eventually matter. Yeah. And now more than ever, you know, especially if you are a developing artist, we talk about this in so many episodes, you know, the music isn't necessarily the leader any longer. It doesn't mean it's not important. In fact, we, you know, Ryan would probably agree that it, it's still the most important thing, but, you know, instead of getting a track at radio and then people finally figuring out what you look like by checking out your video or seeing your promo photo, we all know we're in the day, day and age of social media where you've got, you know, social profiles, probably before you've even launched a song. So it is paramount that you make sure that you've got at least a general understanding. You know, Ryan talks about some really broad concepts here um, or really, you know, some really just specific stuff that look is beyond the scope of what many of us, myself included, sometimes want to pay attention to. That's why, you know, we talk about building a great team. uh, And I think it was back in even episode 10. Um, Let me look and see if I can reference that here. Um, You know, uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but inevitably this is the stuff that you need to be thinking about. Ryan, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. It's it's really amazing to have you here. I know that our paths will cross uh, in the future with uh, speaking into the microphone. Uh, as a matter of fact, am, am I correct in thinking Blasco's A New Level uh, se- Season 1 has an interview with you? Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe I was Episode 2. 
Man, so guys, if you haven't checked that out, please do. It's uh, one of the one of the favorite things that we've done as a network so far this year. And Ryan, um, before I let you go, can you tell people where they can find you on the Big Bad uh, World Wide Web and social media and any, any parting thoughts? Uh, yes, I'm on Twitter at Ryan Downey. Uh, I have, my website is ryanjdowney.com. You can find me on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And the website for Superhero Artist Management is SuperheroHQ.com. And yeah, I just want to say I think it's a fantastic, vital, and important service that you and Blasco are providing with this podcast. And I can only imagine what a valuable resource this would have been once upon a time for so many of us starting out and trying to uh, learn the ins and outs and avoid the various pitfalls and, and have some kind of advantage in getting into making music our business so i want to thank you guys for doing it and of course uh make myself available anytime you'd like to have me back absolutely thanks so much hey guys do check out uh ryan's other stuff i mean he's an inspiration to both blasco and myself um you guys know where to find me on twitter and instagram at michael loop uh also don't hesitate to go check out outerloopcoaching.com for a number of solutions and products that we offer that cover topics just like this ryan i wish you the biggest the baddest and best and free of arguments over your likeness uh, in the coming weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.